Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the sermon from lead pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Wow. You know, I, I, I do thank you, Driven Worship Team, Kyler, your leadership. Um, and it, yeah. And as much as I thank you that you lead me to worship Jesus, I'm, I'm also as grateful, thankful that um, what, what you did for us today was you reminded us that there's a generation coming behind old dudes like me. And sometimes us old people look back and we think, oh, it's all lost. It's not. Here's, here's what, ha- when you think it's all lost, the problem is you're thinking it's up to you. And it's not. It's up to Jesus. And the spirit of the living God will not be defeated. He's not going to be defeated. And we're, we, we saw that displayed in the lives of these young people who love him, who are called according to his purposes and are not afraid to demonstrate it and declare their love for Jesus. And that just blows me away and makes me want to get up in the morning and hit something hard. <laughs> this old broken world. I hope it does you the same way. You know, when, when I think about the idea of God being there for me, it, it helps me connect to what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks about what it means to let Jesus be Lord of every area of our lives. We've been, we, we've been in a series that we've called Capitalize and we saw in the first week that the scripture teaches us that the only real way to capitalize at living this thing called life is if we will quit compartmentalizing. Now what we, what we talked about is that what we like to do is we like to, to compartmentalize our life and we like to have this nice little work drawer and you know our work goes in there and then family relation drawer and relationships go in there and you know then, then we've got our, our, our leisure drawer and we've got our political drawer and we've got a financial drawer and then we've got our spiritual drawer and it's cool if when you come to a place like this somebody talks about that but keep your hands out the other drawers. But we learn that Jesus says for him to be your savior and to be your Lord, he's got to be the whole enchilada, the whole dresser that you can't compartmentalize. And if you can compartmentalize, you'll never capitalize at this thing called life. You'll never have the abundant life that Jesus came to give his people. But we forget sometimes and we, we look in our financial drawer and we, we feel like we're in the fire. We look in our relationship drawer and one of those are broken and we feel like we're in a fire. And we forget that there's somebody standing beside us. And we got to be reminded of that. That there's somebody in the fire with us no matter what we face. And we're going we're gonna to end our series called Capitalize Today. We, we, we looked uh, a few weeks ago at a widow who had very little. And we looked, uh, uh, last week, I'm getting them mixed up. We looked last week at a widow. We looked the week before that at a, at a, at a boy who had some, a widow who had a little. Today we're going to look at an encounter that Jesus had with a man who actually had a lot. And I know if you've already kind of pulled out your worksheet and you, you see the title of the message is, Do You Have a Lot? Many of you have already checked out. You know, you're, you're, you've started tweeting and you've started checking your emails, your Facebook, all of that because you said, well, this message is not about me, so I'm, I'm out of here. Even, you may stay in your seat, but you're, you're, you're thinking, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to be out of here because you think this doesn't describe me. It's, it's hard to find somebody who would say, yeah, I, I'm, I'm in that category. I'm somebody who, who has a lot. You know, when I talk to somebody that I think has a lot, the interesting thing is they don't think they have a lot, but they know somebody who does have a lot. And if you talk to that person, they don't think they have a lot, but they know somebody who has. And it just goes on because it's just also relative. This, these words that we use to describe whether you have some or a little or, or a lot. And most of us would not check ourselves off on the box labeled a lot. 
But just bear with me for just a second because I want to take you to a passage of scripture that kind of presses into this issue a little bit. And then I want to talk about it some more. It's found in 1 Timothy chapter 6. The Apostle Paul is writing to his young protege Timothy. And he's telling Timothy, who's now the pastor at Ephesus, Pastor Timothy, here's what you need to be doing. And so he tells him these different things that as a pastor you need to be doing. And one of the things he tells us is in verse 17 of chapter 6. And he says, Timothy... As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And I like some of the way the other translators translated this, different translations. New Living Translated, teach those who are rich in this world. New American says, instruct those who are rich in this present world. NIV says, command those who are rich in this present world. CEV says, warn the rich people in this world. Now, I know what normally happens when you come to this passage in, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. A lot of us dismiss ourselves there. We let ourselves off the hook because we don't think of ourselves as rich rich. But I want you to notice what Paul said to Timothy. Paul did not say to Timothy, ask for the rich in Charleston in the, or Ephesus in your city. He didn't say ask for the rich in your state or your nation. He said, ask for the rich in this present age or this present world in, in the world. See, Paul said, if, if we're going to talk about this, we need to think about it on a global scale. Tell those who are rich in this world how to live a certain kind of way. And so, we, again, we, we try to think about the world and then that, that gets kind of convoluted, thinking about all the people and, and that kind of stuff and doing comparisons. But I read an article a while back and in that article what they did was they, they kind of pulled all the, these giant numbers, about 7.5 billion people, down to something I could digest. And what it did was it basically said, what if there were 100 people in the world? What would the world look like? Now, I can think of 100 people. Okay? I see 100 people right now. So I can kind of get my mind around 100 people. I know what that looks like. I, I can kind of grab hold of that. And so what they did was they pulled all those numbers down and they put them in, in ratios as if there were 100 people in the world. So we, we've got a population, a global population of 100 people. If that were true, then based on statistical information, 30 of those people would know Jesus. 70 would not. 70 people would not know Jesus in this present world if the entire population was that. Um, when it comes to gender, 50% would be men, 50% would be women. You know, the old saying that there's somebody out there for everybody. Those of you that have been waiting for that other person, hold on. You got statistical information says they're out there, keep looking, don't give up. Okay, you, you, you can go that way. Also, if, if the world was around 100 people, 80 of those 100 people would live in substandard housing. They would have no electricity, no, no running water. 50 people in our world of 100 would be malnourished. One of those people would be currently starving to death right now. Not enough to eat. If we looked at the numbers of that 100 who lived in the United States, it would be six of us. Six of us would, of our global community, six would live in the United States. And interestingly, we would hold 50% of the whole world's wealth. Those six people would hold 50% of, of, of the world's wealth. Now, when we see stuff like that, one of the things that it, 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 I hope it helps you kind of get captured by this reality, if you live in the United States of America, you're going to have a hard time not falling into the classification of somebody who has a lot. So, this message is really for, for all of us. Now, your reality might be right now that you don't have enough money to keep up with the bills that are coming in. Or your reality might be right now that, you know, you're just having a hard time. You're looking for work, you know. I had a lady come up to me about five weeks ago. We prayed together for her husband to, to, to get work. And she came today celebrating that, praise God, he's found two jobs now. And uh, she was just giving thanks to the Lord for that. And so, some days you're going to be over here and some days you're going to be over here. And so, we need to keep things in perspective. 
One of the ways that I keep things in perspective is reading things that have a little slice of comedy to them. And one of those things is uh, an account on Twitter where they keep up with the tweets of people in first world countries. And it's, it's problems that people tweet out that they're having in first world, you know, in their first world environment. So I want to share some of those with you. These are people that tweet out the struggles, how agonizing life can be for them. Here's the first one. It says, how am I supposed to eat these fries without ketchup? Apparently you went to a restaurant, server brought fries, no ketchup, and everybody knows can't eat fries without ketchup. Here's another one. I just had a cup of tea with soy milk. It was one of the worst decisions I've ever made in my life. <laughs> I make worse decisions than that when I get out of bed in the morning, you know? Here's another one. Had to wake up for the ironing lady to come collect her clothes and she still isn't here. <laughs> another. It's so frustrating to get home from the grocery store and not be able to fit the food in the fridge. I mean, isn't that a horrible problem to have that you've got to throw out your old food to make room for your new food? Horrible problems that we have. Here's another one. My pool cover won't open properly. What a drag. And this one might be my favorite. The heated seats in my car don't heat evenly anymore. One of the things that humor can do is point to the reality of this perspective of which we live in, the, the world in, in which we find our, ourselves in. And so when you come to a moment like this, when you're going to be wrestling with what God says to people who have a lot, we try to let ourselves off the hook, but we really can't. There's a, a, an organization uh, that keeps something called the Global Rich List. There, there's this list out, list out there of the global rich. And here's what they say. If your combined household income exceeds $32,400, combined household income exceeds that, then you are in the top 1% of the global rich. I didn't say 10%. I said top 1%. If, you, if your combined income is, is more than that. So, could it be just possibly that God has something to say for all of us in this, this room today as people who have a lot? So we're going to look uh, at Luke chapter 19. If you want to get your Bibles out and open them there, turn them on, whatever. Luke chapter 19. And we're going to look at this encounter that Jesus had with this man who had a lot. And in Luke 19, we read this. It says, he, talking about Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. Jesus was passing through this city called Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. And the next big event in Jesus' life is what we know as the triumphal entry. It's what kicked off the passion, the holy week that went eventually led to his, his death by crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. And so that was going on. So he's traveling on, on this pathway, goes through Jericho, and it says this, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector and was rich. And the word here for rich means very wealthy. Now, before we go any further, I, I want to say this about wealth and what the Bible has to say about it. The Bible does not say there's anything inherently wrong with having a lot. You're not going to see that in scripture. The Bible, the Bible doesn't have a limit. It says, here's the, here's the line of demarcation. Don't cross it or, or you'll have too much. See, the, the money is not good or bad. It's not, not, not evil. Money is uh, amoral. Okay, it's just, it's money. Now, the love of money, the Bible tells us, is the root of all evil. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. You know, and so here's, here's the deal. You don't have to have a lot to actually be consumed with materialism. You can be very, very poor and still have a love for money, a love for, for things. You put your whole life as an emphasis on that. In fact, one of the ways if you're poor to, to begin to diagnose whether or not you're having a problem with money is if you're always kind of angry at people who do have money. That's one of the ways to kind of know if maybe that's your struggle. So having a lot's not evil. And here's what we've got a man who has a lot. This isn't an indictment against Zacchaeus. The Bible's, you know, pretty clear on this. That those who have a lot that are wealthy, it's not going to be sin 
But you're going to struggle and we're going to see this. So I want to press into to that in a moment. But here's what I want to do. I want to hit pause on the Zacchaeus story for a minute. I want you to flip over one chapter backwards to chapter 18. And in chapter 18, Jesus has another encounter just before this encounter with another man who is wealthy. In Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30, there's this encounter recorded that Jesus has with a rich young ruler. And here it is described against somebody who's very wealthy. He's rich and he's young and he comes to Jesus. And he basically says, Jesus, I want to be saved. What do, what do I need to do to really live in your kingdom? I see who you are and I want, to, I want to be saved. And Jesus says, he looks in this guy's heart and he realizes that this particular guy's issue is he's hung up on his wealth. And he knows that his heart isn't consumed with love for God. His heart is really consumed for his stuff. His possessions, his money. And so Jesus says to this man, here's what you do. You go sell everything that you have. Give away what you get out of that sale to the poor. And you come be one of my disciples. You come follow me. One of the greatest invitations ever given to anybody. Come follow me. And here's what we read in verse 23. The Bible says, when he heard these things, he became very sad. This wealthy young ruler, very, very sad, the Bible tells us. And the Bible tells us why he became very sad. Because he was extremely rich. He was very sad because he was extremely, extremely rich. Now that's kind of ironic because we don't typically think about people who are very rich being very sad. But this is the cause that the scripture gives to this. Almost as if it would have been easier for this man to have actually followed Jesus if he had maybe some or he had a little. But because he had a lot, it was hard for him to walk away. And I think some of us might kind of understand that. See, th this, this concludes, this encounter concludes in verses 24 and 25 as Jesus kind of gives a warning that falls over all of us. Jesus seeing this, it says in verse 24, that he had become sad. sad. Jesus said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying this is hard. For the wealthy to really enter into the kingdom of God. He goes on to say it's this hard. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now some people would say camel, eye, a needle. Man that's impossible. Just a couple of verses down. Verse 27. Jesus goes on to say what is impossible with man is possible with God. So it's not impossible. Camel going through the eye of a needle. Now, here's the, the reality, and, and I think most of us know this. The more you have, the more those things seem to, to have you. The more your possessions can start to kind of own you and control you. And you might start looking to them to be your savior more than you do Jesus. And so Jesus says, it's hard. Easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. Because Jesus knows that Satan is going to tempt us. And he's going to deceive us into believing something different about finances, about, about money. And there are three deceptions that just kind of came to my mind as I was studying this and thinking about it and looking at the whole of Scripture about wealth. And I want to give you those three deceptions because you're going to encounter them. Most of you already have. The first deception, and, and, and again, this is kind of what Paul was telling Timothy, warn people. So here's kind of a warning about the deception of the enemy when it comes to finances. The first one is this. We, we develop this false belief, this deception that satisfaction will be mine once I get a lot. Whatever you've got a lot, your line is, you, you have this idea that once I get a lot, I will finally be satisfied. I will finally be happy. And what happens instead of looking to Jesus as our satisfaction, we start looking at a lot to be our source of satisfaction. You think if I could just have a little bit more, I'd be content. A little bit more, I'd be happy. But most surveys that are done on this topic prove that that's just not true. Princeton University did a survey on this and it really showed that there's really not much difference. Um, there were some pockets where there was difference for one of the differences they pointed out. If you only make $5,000 a year, you are much less happy than somebody making $50,000 a year. They were just honest and said that's one of the results finding. But we went on to say, however, if you only make $20,000 a year, you're only like 12% less happy than somebody who makes $100,000 a year. 
And it goes on to say in, in this Princeton study, if you make a combined income of over $100,000 a year, that you're almost equal in happiness to people who make $10 million a year. That the happiness factor does not change that much. And so there's this, this tendency actually on the upper end of that, it's said for people to be anxious and to be so consumed with that, pursuing that, that they never take time to actually do activities where you enjoy life. And, you know, yet there's this part of us, we hear statistics like this, and I saw some of you smile when I read them, and I know what you were thinking. You were thinking, yeah, give me a shot at it, baby. You were thinking, I'll, I'll disprove those statistics. I, it won't happen to me, man. But the truth is, all of us really already have a lot and we still miss kind of the mark. Here's another deception. Second deception is this, that significance will be mine once I got a lot. If I could just get that, whatever that lot is, I, I would be significant. And, and what happens is somehow you have attached your personal value to your valuables. Somehow there's in your mind that your net worth equals your self-worth. And those are just lies from the enemy. That, that's, not the, that's not the truth. Because see, you'll begin to define your identity in those things instead of in, in Jesus. And God's word is filled with the truth about your identity. And it can only be found in Jesus. And so, all throughout God's word, it tells you in Christ, this is true of you. In Christ, this is true of you. Not in a lot. It's in, in, in Christ because that's where true riches, true riches are. A third deception is security. That security will be mine once I, I get a lot. And we tend to think that a, you know, a lot of money is what will make me secure instead of Jesus. And you know, we, 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 we think, you know, if I got enough money, then I, I, would, just, I would just be sec secure. And so very few of us ever pray the prayer that Jesus taught his followers to pray. I mean, really pray it. Really pray it. Lord, Give me this day my daily bread. We don't pray that prayer. Why? Because we can just run down the street and get some bread if we want it. Some of us have bread growing projects in our, you know, our pantry right now. Turning blue. You know, we got bread. So we don't pray for bread. And, 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 and so we miss this because we, because of that, we look to ourselves and our capacity to provide for our security. And that's why then when we hit something that we can't fix, our world comes apart. Because we forget there's somebody standing in the fire with us. We forget it because we're not living it on a daily basis. And that's one of the things that the deception of a lot does. And so in Luke 18, we read about this man who was deceived by a lot and he walks away from Jesus. Okay, now we're going to go back to Luke 19 and push play on Zacchaeus. Because he's, he's kind of at this moment now. He's, he's coming to this moment and we've got to ask the question, what, what's going to happen? What, what is Zacchaeus going to do? Here's another wealthy guy having another encounter with Jesus. And we know that in Zacchaeus' life, he knew he was missing something. He had all this stuff. He had a lot. But he was still seeking. Look what it says in verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. He was this didn't satisfy a lot didn't satisfy in and of itself. He was, he was seeking. It says, but on account of the crowd, he could not. He's trying to see Jesus, but he couldn't because he was small in stature. Don't laugh. I know, I know some of you want to laugh already. He was small in stature, so he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. He wanted to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. So here's what we've got. We've got this really rich guy who's really short. That's what we know about Zacchaeus at this moment. Real rich, real short. And the Bible very seldom gives us that much information about somebody's physical appearance. But when it does, one of the things that I love to do is I love to think about who would I cast into that role? Now don't say me. I know some of you would be smart, Alex, and do that. But who, who would you cast into the role of Zacchaeus if you were making a movie? I would cast Danny DeVito. That's who I would cast. 
I, I could just see Danny DeVito, you know, playing Zacchaeus, you know, being rich and in these robes and just running for a tree, man. He wants to see Jesus. He's hopping, you know. He can't see. I, I've done that before, you know. He's hopping to see. He can't see. And, and, and all of a sudden, he sees this tree. Now, here's what's really cool about this moment. Like a little boy, he kind of forgets himself. And like a child coming to Jesus, he climbs a tree. This chief tax collector, wealthy guy. He, he climbs up a tree because he wants to get a glimpse uh, of Jesus. He's desperate now for his life to be a wealthy guy. Got a lot going on. But he needs to know about Jesus. Verse 5, and it says, When Jesus came to the place, the place where Zacchaeus was, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. This day, I need to be at your house. And it says that Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. And when they saw it, now this is the crowd, when they saw it, they all did what? Grumbled. They, they just grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, they weren't calling Zacchaeus a sinner because Zacchaeus had a lot of money. In fact, in that culture, most of the time, if somebody had a lot of money, they would have thought they had been blessed of God. They were calling Zacchaeus a sinner, not because he had a lot, but because of how he got a lot. And remember, Zacchaeus, the other description about him was he was the chief tax collector. And what that means is, in his day, Zacchaeus was kind of like the top of a Ponzi scheme. He was like the Bernie Madoff of his day. He was ripping people off, okay? And the way, the way that it worked, now remember, the nation of Israel was being held captive in their own nation by this uh, foreign country. Rome had come in and occupied. And one of the things Rome did to keep their armies paid is they would make the people they conquered pay them taxes. And so the way that they managed that is they would get the people to become tax collectors. Um, in this case, the Jews, they would call out tax collectors and they would set them up over a region. So they'd call this one guy to be chief tax collector. They would appoint him and he would become chief tax collector. His job was to go out and hire, get other tax collectors. All of them had the power of Rome behind them. And then they would go out and they would get money from people. And they would, here's what it would happen. They would, they would come, to, come to Gary and they would say, Gary, your taxes this year, they didn't have, you know, those printouts that you get mailed. They'd just say, Gary, you owe the government $150. But Gary really owed $100. And so they would take $150 from Gary because Gary knew that if he didn't give him the $150, the Roman army would be at his doorstep. So he'd give the $150. They would take the $100. They would give it to Rome. $50 they would pocket, but half of that they would have to give to the chief tax collector. So this was Zacchaeus. So he had money flowing in from all over the region from these other lower tax collectors. And he was making a killing. He was just making a killing off of his own people. He was at the top of this horrible pyramid scheme. Pocketing all of this money. Cheating people. Extorting people. And these people were oftentimes his friends and his families and his neighbors. You know, we have a, a saying in our culture sometimes in the marketplace. Have you ever heard this saying? It's just business. It's, it's just business. It's not spiritual. It's not personal. It, it, it's, just, it's just business. In, in other words, uh, how I do what I do out here really doesn't matter to the rest of my life. My, my work drawer isn't really part of my whole life. It's a compartment. So you got to do things differently. There. But friends, you can't separate you can't compartmentalize and capitalize. And on this issue, the Bible speaks a lot. We, we, we need to look into this. And so one of the questions you and I have to ask ourselves is, have I, have I taken advantage of somebody in order to gain something? Have I taken advantage of another person to accumulate more for myself? 
This is what the tax collectors were doing. They were taking advantage of these people. And scripture has a lot to say about this. Look at James. Jesus' half-brother James writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 1. Look here, you rich people. You people who have a lot. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead for you. This treasure you have accumulated will stand as evidence against you on the day of judgment. So it, it's going to testify against you. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The wages you held back cry out against you. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord. They've gotten a lot, but they've gotten it off the, the backs of somebody else. They've gotten it by, by cheating other people. And so one of the questions that this begs all of us to answer is, have I? Have I been honest or dishonest in the marketplace with, with other people? Am I a person of integrity on in my job, in my, in my investments, where I work? See, Zacchaeus made a lot of money, but he did it by lying and by cheating. That's extorting people. Billing people for hours that, that weren't worked. Look at some of what more that the scripture says on this. Proverbs chapter 20 warns us. God hates cheating in the marketplace. God hates it. Proverbs chapter 28. Better is a poor man who walks in integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. See, this is kind of a bottom line perspective on God's word. Is that morality to God is more important than prosperity. Your moral bank account needs to be larger than your financial bank account. And so Jesus comes along and he encounters Jesus and he says, uh, Zacchaeus, and he says, I'm going to your house today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with you. And the Bible tells us that Zacchaeus is like way thrilled. He is unbelievably honored that this nationally known prophet is going to come and spend the day at his house, is going to eat with him. Now I imagine, just I imagine, that Zacchaeus ate pretty well. He's pretty well off. He probably ate well. But I imagine Zacchaeus ate alone. Nobody came to dinner parties at Zacchaeus' house. Nobody wanted to be around Zacchaeus. Wanted to be associated with Zacchaeus. But Jesus. J Jesus comes. And, and he's here with Zacchaeus. And I think Zacchaeus... From what we see the outcome in a moment, Zacchaeus is saying, this is what I've been looking for my whole life. I've got all this stuff and I've, I've, I've worked and thought if I get to this level, then that would be it and it's not. And I get to this level and that would be it and it's not. And so Zacchaeus is at a place now where he's encountered something different. And he's realized what I've been looking for, you can't buy off a rack, what, you know, you can't have it sent to, to ship to your house. It's only going to be in the riches of a relationship with this man who's in my house now. This man known as Jesus. And Zacchaeus realizes this is what he's been waiting on his whole life. Jesus is where true riches are found. I want to commend a book to you if you've never read it. It's a biography, autobiography really, by Billy Graham. It's called Just As I Am. And in his book, uh, in the th there, there are lots of little chapters. In the 39th chapter, he tells a story. Um, and he says this. He says, some years ago now, Ruth and I had um, a vivid illustration of what it means to capitalize in this thing called life. He said, we were on the, one of the Caribbean islands, and one of the wealthiest men in the world asked us to come to his lavish home for lunch. He was 75 years old, um, and throughout the entire meal, he seemed so close to tears. He said, I am the most miserable man in the world. Out there is my yacht. I can go anywhere I want to. I have my private plane. I have my helicopters. I have everything I want to make me happy. And yet, I'm as miserable as hell. Graham says, we talked with him. And we prayed with him. And we tried to point him to Jesus Christ who alone gives lasting meaning to life. Then we went down the hill to our small cottage where we'd been staying. And later that afternoon, the pastor of a local Baptist church came to call. He was an Englishman. And he too was 75 years old. He was a widower. He spent most of his free time taking care of his two invalid sisters. He, Graham says he reminded me of a cricket always jumping up and down. He was full of enthusiasm and love for Christ and for others. 
And the man said, I don't have two pounds to my name, but I'm the happiest man on this island. And Graham asked his wife, after the man left, he said, Ruth, who do you think was the richest man? See, we, we have this idea that a lot somehow is going, to, is going to give us life. Going to give us something in this life we don't have. And Zacchaeus is discovering that what he had been longing for, he might have had a lot, but he was poor. He was miserably poor. And he didn't realize how poor he was until he met this homeless rabbi. This homeless teacher. And that he found true riches in, in this man. And it changed him. And th th his encounter with Jesus began to change how he thinks about everything. Look at verse 8. I I'm going to read this out of the, new, the NIV translation. It, it, just the way it worded it was powerful to me. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Zacchaeus says, Jesus, I've met you and you've changed my life. Every area of my life. Even, even this drawer that nobody, nobody gets in. You've changed my, how I think about finances. This is going to sound mean. And I don't intend for it to be. But I've got to say it. If you've had an, a personal encounter with Jesus... If you, if you know Jesus as Savior and Lord and it hasn't somehow impacted your finances, you've missed a huge point of what Jesus' Lordship is about for you. If that, if that area of your life, nothing's changed in that drawer labeled finances. See, when Zacchaeus meets Jesus, a natural thing for those who encounter Jesus happens to him. Zacchaeus says, Lord, this drawer is yours. And Lord, this drawer is yours. And Lord, this drawer is yours. And Lord, all of them are yours. It, it, it's all yours, Lord. That's what it, it means to encounter Jesus this way. Now, here's what I, I want you to use your imaginations for just a minute. Can you imagine what it was like when Zacchaeus stepped out of that dinner and he begins declaring publicly... And begins following through on it. Giving four times what he cheated from people. Giving them four times back than what he cheated them of. Can you imagine that? Let, let me see if I can help you with your imagination for a minute. Let's say that you owned a seven-year-old Honda Civic. Okay? And one morning you get up and somebody, somebody has stolen your Civic out of your driveway. It's gone. And three or four years later, you get up another morning, like that morning when your, your Civic was stolen, and there is a, there's a 2019 Mercedes-Benz sitting in your driveway. And on, on that car is a note that says, three or four years ago, I stole your Civic. And I've met Jesus now, and I'm trying to walk with him and because I've met Jesus, th this is my car. I'm giving it to you now. What would you say next? Uh, I know what you'd say. You'd go in the house and say, honey, we're going to church Sunday. <laughs> Jesus changes things. That's, that's what, because where Jesus is, Transformation happens. It's, it's, it's normal. It's not, it's not to, to be unusual. It's supposed to be the normal way. And Zacchaeus announces this. Can you just imagine the testimony? Can you imagine what began happening in Jericho on that day? When they saw Jesus touch this man's life, sit with him, go into his home. And this man comes out utterly transformed because, because of Jesus. What would happen? What would happen in North Charleston? What would happen in your neighborhood or in your workplace? If the Holy Spirit reminded you of someone maybe you took advantage of. 
Maybe, maybe you sold a car to somebody and you knew there was something wrong with it when you sold it to them, but you did not tell them because it would diminish the value of what you would get back. Maybe the Holy Spirit is just reminding you of that and, and maybe there's this thought that you need to go to that person and you need to look up what the repair cost on that would have been and you need to go give it to them. What do you think that would do? in our neighborhood or what if you went to your boss because the Holy Spirit convicted you that you had been wasting time at work and you go to your boss and say hey look I've I've not been diligent in my in my work and I'm estimating that basically I blow about an hour a day and so for the next month here's what I'm gonna do I'm gonna come to work an hour earlier or I'm gonna stay an hour later I don't want to be compensated for it it's off the books but I'm, I'm gonna work that hour extra every week to make it right because Jesus is changing me what, what, would, what would go on see here's, here's, the, here's the big idea of all of this series really of all three messages whether you have a little or whether you have a lot or whether you have some just the big idea in scripture about money is how you get money and what you do with money concerns God much more than how much you have how you get it, what you do with it. God is more concerned for you about those things than how much you have. It, the, 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 the amount doesn't matter. And, and the scriptures go to great lengths to, to tell us about lots of things about money, about, about savings. We should do that and about the dangers of debt. But in this story, Zacchaeus encounters Jesus and he becomes radically generous. And, and he just starts giving it away. If you want to really know, if you really want to know what role money plays in your life, start giving some of it away. You'll know. You'll know by the pain level it brings you to give some of it away. It, 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 it'll, it'll just, it, it'll do that. And one of the things that'll happen is when you start giving it away, the, the idol of money will start to shrivel and die. Because it wants to be one of the most important things in your life. It wants your life to revolve around it. And the only thing that kills it is a heart that becomes generous and, and gives it away. And, and Zacchaeus experiences that. Luke 18, a guy who had a lot, encountered Jesus and walked away sorrowful. Filled with sorrow, the Bible tells us. Luke 19, Zacchaeus says, look, I'm going to give half of what I got away. It, it, it's killing me anyway. I'm going to give half of it away. Just imagine the, the, the testimony. Just imagine that. There's a guy by the name of, of Ron Sider. He's, he's kind of a Christian anthropologist, if you would. He kind of studies human nature. And he really, he really writes a lot about um, inequities in, in the world. And he wrote a, an article called A Lot of Lattes. And in that, he, he recounts um, some, of, some statistics out of a book that he had read. Um, the book was entitled this, Passing the Plate, Why American Christians Don't Give Away More Money. Now, just so you know, I went and I looked, and it, did not, it was not a bestseller. Um, I, doubt very, you know, I doubt if any of you bought that book. Um, but what he does is he kind of gives a synopsis of the author's findings there. And part of what the authors did was they did some study and, and they, they interviewed people who described themselves as very devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And in that pool, he began talking to them about their finances and he discovered something. If the, if the people who said that they were devoted followers of Jesus Christ, if that group alone would start tithing, because obviously a lot of them didn't, they would start honoring God with what he says honors him, the tithe, they discovered that there would be an extra $46 billion a year going into kingdom work. Not million, $46 billion. And then Ron Sider took that number and he began dreaming what could, how the world could be different if the people of God lived as the people of God, what, how the world would look differently. And he said this, he said there, there could be 150,000 new indigenous missionaries supported in the world 
every year. Or there could be five million more micro-loans poured out on poor entrepreneurs. Or there would be enough money to, to feed and clothe and shelter the 6,500,000 refugees on the continents of Asia and Africa. Or there would be enough money uh, to, f to fund a global campaign to prevent and treat malaria. Or there would be enough resources to sponsor an additional 20 million children globally. And then Sider makes this conclusion. He says this. Not that the radical generosity, but if, if those who claim to follow Jesus passionately would just become financially generous and obedient in America... It would generate staggering uh, amounts of wealth that would change the world. So how do we respond to that as a reality? With, what, with what's been given to us. Do you remember what Zacchaeus said in verse 8? Zacchaeus said this. Here and now, here and now I, I, I give. Right, right, right here, right now. I'm not going to wait till later. I'm not going to wait till I get to this new level of, of whatever. I'm not going to put this off. I am going to become generous. I'm going to become obedient in my giving. And I think that's a challenge for all of us in this room. But I want you to see the outcome. What, what's the outcome when that happens? Verse 9 story concludes this way. It says this. Jesus said this to, to Zacchaeus. He said, today salvation has come to this house since he is also the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus says, what you just saw, that's why I came. The transformative power of the good news of why I'm here. That's why I came. To change human lives. To keep them from being captive to anything. Do you know when you read this passage of scripture, the story of Zacchaeus. I hope you realized you saw a miracle. The camel went through a needle's eye. When you read Zacchaeus, when you read what happened in Luke 18, when you get to Luke 19 and Zacchaeus is transformed, the camel went through the needle's eye. And that's what happens to people when they encounter the living Jesus. The power that he brings to, to change lives. When I was thinking about this and, and reading about it, one of the things that I got reminded of was another person in the Old Testament who became prominently known in Jericho. Does anybody come to mind Old Testament? She's actually one of Jesus's great 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 grandmothers. She was a prostitute named Rahab. And Joshua writes about this. The, they sent spies into the land and these spies go and stay with this prostitute in Jericho. And they're saved and the Bible tells us that salvation came to her house that day. And I was just thinking about Jericho. You know, Rahab and then generations later, we see Zacchaeus. And now generations later, we're here today. What, what would it be like? What would it be like for here and now for this to be Jericho? Right, right, right here. This place to be Jericho. The place where people meet the power of God. And unbelievable life change happens. People who everybody else thought were unqualified, couldn't, you know, out of the reach of God. Prostitutes and tax collectors. But what it does for me is it causes me to pray. It causes me to pray that on this day, that generations later, that that this would be Jericho. And that Jesus would come and, and he would come here and he would sit and you would see Jesus. And, and what you and I would say is Jesus, all of it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open it all, Jesus. I'm just going to open my life completely to you, Jesus. All of it. I want you to be Lord of all of it. Jesus, today, just like Zacchaeus said, here now I give I give myself 
I give every drawer, I give every compartment, I give myself to you here and now, Jesus. Let's pray. Would you, would you make that your prayer today, here and now? Here and now, Jesus, I give myself back to you. I've been, I've been away for a while, Jesus. I've been kind of wandering. I've been, I've been a little bit like Zacchaeus. I've been looking. And I've been looking in places that were not you. And I'm back here today to say, Jesus, it is you. I see now that all the riches that I've been wanting are in you alone. And so I come. I come back to you. Maybe, maybe here today you've, you've heard the Spirit of God convict and convince you of who he is. That he wants all of your life. That all of you matters to him and he has a wonderful plan to set you free. To give you what you have been looking for in all the wrong places all of your life. And today you realize that Jesus loves you and you matter to him. You, you finally get in your heart of hearts that God loves you so much that he sent his most treasure possession, his, his only begotten son. His greatest possession and he gave it up he sacrificed it for you so that you could have those riches in Christ alone would you honor him by giving yourself to him every compartment every drawer all of your life and you can do that right where you're at you can come to God and say, God, I recognize that you were the ultimate giver. You were ultimately generous. You, were give, you gave me grace. You gave me mercy. You, you've, you've given me salvation and you did it all as a free gift if I would but trust your son Jesus. And so here and now, I give myself to you right now, right here. I want to experience the richness I've been withholding some of myself from you and I, here and now I give. Is that your prayer today? If it is, pray it in the name of Jesus. And worship him now. Worship him in giving. Your talents, your treasure, your life, your time. Give yourself to the Lord as we worship. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.